Welcome to Partnering Leadership, conversations with leading influencers in the greater Washington, D.C. region and global thought leaders, helping you align better with your purpose, grow professionally with meaning, and have a greater impact. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at PartneringLeadership.com. Now here's your host, Mahan Tavakoli. Welcome to Partnering Leadership. I'm really excited this week to be welcoming Azim Ashar. While we spend most of our time in this conversation talking about Azim's brilliant book, Exponential Age, I have to tell you, Azim is one of those people that as I share in the conversation, I have learned so much from over the past half a dozen years. He's an award-winning entrepreneur, analyst, strategist, and investor, and he shares his insights on a weekly basis in his Exponential View newsletter, more than 200,000 subscribers, and also the Exponential View podcast, which is distributed by Harvard Business Review. I think a lot of what Azim talks about is essential for all of us as individuals and as leaders to understand about the pace of change and the impact it's going to have on all of our lives and our organizations. I've learned a lot from Azim and really enjoy this conversation too. He is both brilliant with respect to where things are headed and also being able to communicate it in a way that most of us, including me, can follow and understand. So I enjoyed the conversation and I have no doubt you will too. I also enjoy hearing from you. Keep your comments coming, mahanatmahantavikoli.com. There is also a microphone icon on partneringleadership.com. You can leave voice messages for me there. Don't forget to follow the podcast. That way you'll be notified of new releases Tuesdays with magnificent change makers from the greater Washington, D.C. region, and Thursdays with brilliant global thought leaders like Azim Azhar. Now, here's my conversation with Azim. Azim Azhar, welcome to Partnering Leadership. I'm thrilled to have you in this conversation with me. Oh, I'm really pleased to be here, Mahan. Thank you for having me. Azim, I love your book, The Exponential Age, How Accelerating Technology is transforming business, politics, and society. I also have to tell you, in addition to a guest you've had on your show, Yuval Harari, and Daniel Kahneman, I think you've done the most in helping me view the world around me differently, which is why I am thrilled to be able to share you with the Partnering Leadership community. But before we get to that, your origin soup, and I love how you put that, impacted who you've become. What is your origin story and your origin soup? First of all, thank you so much for those kind words. Uh, those are incredibly big boots to fill between Harari and Kahneman. I will do my very, very best. As I was writing my newsletter over the last six or seven years, I started it in 2015, uh, and then doing the research for the book, one question kept coming up from people who were, were reading the newsletter, which is, how can you tell this story about technology, both from the perspective of the technology, but also from the perspective of economics and society and institutions? And, and I thought a little bit about that because that had always been an interest of mine. And it goes back to the origin. So I was born in 1972. It's the year after Intel has its tremendous first package processor, the 4004, that people think really kickstarted the PC revolution. And during the 70s, personal computers were being produced by people like Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs and the guys behind the Altair and Atari and so on. 
And I grew up alongside those. And I grew up alongside them in the media and cultural conscious. I saw computers in Star Wars. We saw computers in War Games, 1983 film with Matthew Broderick. And I got my first computer in 1981. So I have grown up alongside these devices as they've developed, as a hundred million other people who were born in 1972 did. But I was lucky in, by happenstance of accidents, my junior school had a single computer, a Sharp MZ80K. My parents got me, got us a computer. My mum had a computer at work and I loved them and I loved the freedom they gave. And I became really, really deeply, deeply interested in it. But in the UK at the time, it wasn't so easy to, to do that. I, my school didn't offer a computer science subject formally. So that explains my interest in technology. What about the politics, the economics and the institutions? Well, that's really about the origin. So I was born in Zambia. My family is from Pakistan, but they had been naturalized and living in the UK for a long time. So what on earth were we doing in Zambia? We were there because having naturalized and become a British citizen during his graduate studies, my dad took a job with the British government, the equivalent of the USAID, to go down to Zambia, this newly independent country, and help it build its economic institutions. And that's what they were doing. And so I had this interest around the home about what work looked like and what outputs looked like, right? If you come from a family of doctors, outputs look like colds and flus and broken bones and surgeries. If you come from a family of retailers, you think about SKUs and stock levels and inventory and, and cashing up at the end of the day. And if you come from a family that has been working roughly in this field, those are the things that you associate with work. And, and of course, those are the things that my parents knew about. So they weren't going to come home and talk about the latest medical treatment or see that in the newspaper and discuss it. They were going to talk these issues. So I had a long-term interest in economics and, and the institutional framing of economics. And ultimately, that was one of the things I studied at university. And so my origin story is it has these two branches to it. And, there, you know, there are things that are not in it, like medicine is not in it. Finances is not in it. But these things are in it. And that was a pattern of my, my career, bouncing between those two areas. And ultimately, that is what my book is. It, it grabs hold of that little me that I got excited about computers in 1979 and that little me that was surrounded by people thinking about those type of economic institutional issues in the home. And I find that's one of the strengths that you bring to the conversation, Azim, whether with your newsletter for years that now has more than 200,000 subscribers and your book, you're able to explain the technologies and their impact on society, politics, business at large, you're able to translate that impact that I, oftentimes I find is very difficult for the technologists themselves to be able to do that. Now, one of the things that you also mentioned is that most of us feel the pace of change because of these technologies is really fast. You quote 60% of people feel that the pace of change is really fast. I wonder, hasn't that always been the case, Azim? Haven't we always looked around? Every generation says, you know what? It is really different this time around because we are no longer riding our horses. We are sitting in cars. What is different this time around? Yeah, I really wanted to challenge the, any idea that this might be a, a kind of Copernican fallacy, right? That we think that the world Earth revolves around the sun that is us. And, and as you rightly say, historically, there are many cases where 
people have said, oh, the world is moving too quickly. I, I had a whole list of these that I researched. For example, someone writing in a newspaper worried about young women reading late into the night using new electric lights and how that might harm them. Probably morally was the idea. And of course, the elevator in the first New York buildings was so scary that there was a person who sat in there to sort of make you feel comfortable in a way. But I think there is a difference and there's a kind of quantitative difference that we can measure. We can measure it by the speed with which new innovations emerge in the economy and the speed with which they distribute themselves into the economy and the rate with which things change. And I go in, in the exponential age in the book, I go into some detail about a number of those mechanics. But perhaps one example that I can share with you is there was a company called UiPath, which makes a, a type of technology that automates certain types of business processes. And when I started writing the book, I wanted to just mention UiPath in the kind of my section about work because it affects office work. And they were a startup and they, they were valued pretty handsomely at around five, six hundred million dollars. That was in the proposal. By the time I got the book started, which was a, a several months later, the valuation was a billion dollars. By the time I finished the first draft, I hit my deadlines, by the way. I finished the first draft about a year later. Their valuation was seven billion. By the time we got to the final, final draft, which is another four months later, the valuation was 10 billion for this company. And then a few weeks later, the galleys come back from the press. So this is the laid out version of the book in a kind of binding that looks a bit like the real thing. And I say to my editor, listen, these guys have gone public and that valuation is now $35 billion. And so I had to go in and keep changing the text during this period of time, this process of writing a book. Now I know book writing is a slow process, but there hasn't been a moment in history where we see this dramatic, dramatic pace of change. And, and I look at it in my record collection. You know, I first owned the Saturday Night Fever album, the, the Bee Gees one. When I was seven and my first records, it was on a vinyl. And then I got it on tape and then I got it on CD. And then I got it on a sort of MP3 download. And then I got it on streaming access. And now, by the way, I've just bought it back on vinyl again, like full circle, because I'm a vinyl player. But that's five changes. And the thing that's different is that that happened between the age of seven and the age of about 42 or so a few years ago, 35 years. Normally these changes would take decades to occur. And so you might see the shift to the car, but you were unlikely to see steam trains and horse buggies to the car, to the Tesla. Whereas now we see these kind of transformational things happening from the perspective of your listeners who are leaders within business planning cycles. And that's, I think that's a new environment. And that is an environment that is causing a lot of stress for the leaders, whether it's with respect to their organization's strategy and maneuvering on an ongoing basis. Now, a key part of what you talk about is exponential. It is an exponential age and exponential technologies. It's one of those concepts, Azim, that I find people talk about at times, but don't grasp. What is exponential? It's true. It is used a lot, especially after the pandemic or during the pandemic. We understood the idea of the exponential phase. There's a formal mathematical definition, of course, of what an exponential is. And there is a formal study of, of all of this. And then there's just the very, very informal where someone says exponential. What they mean is really fast or ginormous or, you know, choose your word. 
I use a, a definition that, and, and, and I mean this in a way that is, it's designed to be a pragmatic understanding of what's going on. So it is not as mathematically formal as you might need to describe exponential if you're doing a, a graduate degree, but it's not meant to be slack and sloppy. So the idea is that an exponential change is one that increases by a, a fixed proportion. It's basically compound interest. It's a bank account that pays 1% interest every year and compounds every year. Now that level at 1% per annum is a very slow exponential. I mean, stuff doesn't change that often. In fact, it takes about 70 years for that bank account to double. But in the exponential age, what we see are technologies that are improving by at least 10% per annum, in some cases, 50 or 60% per annum or faster. And that is compounding and it is happening for decades. Now, what does that mean? A technology that say gets 35% better every year. So you get 35% more of whatever that technology does next year to this year will double every two years and quadruple in three and octuple in four, and then whatever comes after octuple, uh, hexadecuple in five. <laughs> and that is really, really remarkable because the flip side, if you invert that, is that it's getting 16 times cheaper in five years over where it is today. And is 35% a reasonable number that I just plucked out of the air? Well, I use 10% as my floor, and none of the technologies that I looked at are actually at 10%. They're all higher, 18, 19, 20%. Silicon chips have improved at 40 to 45% are roughly on average every year for about 50, 60 years. And in the field of biology, the capabilities to sequence the human genome or any genome, frankly, and the capabilities to synthesize right out synthetic genes have been dramatically declining in price far faster than computer chips ever did. So what do I mean by exponential? It's that idea of the compound interest on the capabilities of a technology, I insist on a kind of 10 percentage minimum over many, many decades, which means that you see these things double in capability or halve in price within business planning cycles. When I talk about that, Azim, I find people intellectually get it, but it's still very overwhelming. I was talking to the board of an organization that I chaired, Leadership Greater Washington, and use the example that actually is an old Persian Indian story about a king that asks a person that had worked on a project for him, some say in making the chessboard, how he wanted to get paid. And if one grain of wheat or rice was put on the first one, by the fifth block, you would have only 31 grains. But by the end of that chessboard, you would have 1.4 trillion metric tons, which is more than 2,000 times the world's production. I say that to people and they nod and they're like, oh my God, that's crazy. However, understanding that exponential change in our own environment and our own world is hard to visualize. How can leaders better try to grasp the exponential change before we talk about the technologies that will go through that exponential change. Well, I love that story. I think it's rice rather than wheat, because although I'm from North India, where it's more kind of wheaty, I, I think the original story is somewhere in the kind of middle of the subcontinent where it was more of a ricey culture. It's an amazing story. And the challenge is, I don't think the underlying 
basis for why we struggle with this is really well understood. I mean, I did a lot of work looking at the the research and you're right, it's very, very evident that people struggle with this. They struggled during COVID when we're in the exponential growth phase and they had three weeks worth of data and they were asked for the fourth week. <laughs> they basically underestimated it. They even struggle in highly, highly educated, rich societies with simple questions. So there was a good example with the test around saving for a pension or 401k, as you might call it in the US, done in, in Sweden. And even when the, the interest rate was low, it was like 7%, people consistently misunderstood what the long-term effects would be. And it's one reason why psychologists think we start saving too late for our retirement. That power of compound interest, it's an area to, I think, understand the psychology and then the tools that would merit a lot more research so that we could understand what's going on. Specifically, what I try to do when I work with leaders is I try to, first of all, give them some simple heuristics. A really simple heuristic is if you look at a growth rate and you divide 70 by that growth rate, that gives you the doubling time. So if something's improving at 10% per annum, 70 divided by 10 tells you it doubles every seven years. If it's improving at 35% per annum, which is the example I used earlier, 70 divided by 35 means a doubling every two years. So you can quickly do the maths in your head and get a rough idea of what how long the doubling will take place. So that's the first tool. The second tool to think about is that this is all about declining prices. And so declining prices means that demand will increase. And if demand increases, well, let's just pause there. We'll get on to what happens when demand increases. And then I try to think about stories that I can tell to help people recognize that. And so the one I use is when I was a child, our family had one camera. It was a Polaroid instant land camera. And some 40 years later, I did a count of how many cameras we have in my household. And well, the answer has changed since yesterday because I just got a new camera, but it's now 58. Okay. So, and you're probably not far off because if you've got a modern car, you've got at least four cameras in that car. If you've got a modern smartphone, you've got four. If you've got two old smartphones sitting in a drawer, that's another six. If you have any smart device kicking around, at all, you're likely to have a, a, a camera in there. If you counted the number of computers you have in your house, in your household, it is hundreds. Neither of us are likely to have these given our age now, but when we were younger with our partners, we probably had those digital pregnancy tests. Those have a small computer inside them. You buy these things for $2 and you throw them away. And that's what happens when prices decline. So I start to say, let's look at that so that you've understood the doubling can happen, you've understood where it might go, and then I've taken it back to something that you might recognize. Because if you're saying to me, there is no way a household will increase the number of anything it has by a factor of 60 over 30 years, I've got evidence points, which is that we've done that with cameras and other things. And I think that then gets people to start to think about this from a fundamental basis. Because part of the challenge I think that leaders have run into is that people have sold them so much hoopla and P.T. Barnum around technology, over-promising, without explaining the risks, without explaining the uncertainties, without explaining how this is a complex system where small assumptions changing will radically change the timing of the outcomes of the nature of the outcomes. So what I tried to do is build people back to those fundamental processes and get them to ask the question, yeah, I can see that this is happening. And if prices come down this far, 
how far could this actually go? And then I think once you get there, you're at a point where you can have that next set of questions. That is a brilliant analogy and great way for us to see that if we had gone back 30 years ago and told people that they would have hundreds of cameras, as he said, in their homes, it would have been really hard to visualize that. We have reached levels that would have been hard to visualize. And the pace of all of these changes with technology is becoming faster. You talk about a transition point somewhere between 2011 and 2014, Azim. And the fact that this is not just for technology companies. One of the frustrations I have is in some of the conversations with leaders and listeners to the podcast, a lot of times in their minds, they categorize the impact of these changes to impacts on technology companies. But these impact all kinds of companies and all, as you say, governments and society at large. So what happened 2011 through 2014 to shift us into this exponential age? Yeah, that's the inflection point. You know, when you look at it at an exponential curve, it, it is smooth and it has a kink in it at some point. Now, mathematically, there is no kink. As I said, sort of mathematical formalism tells you that there's no kink and you'll always see that kink as you zoom in or zoom out on the curve and it'll be in a different place. But we see a kink and the scale that matters is what's happening in our everyday lives. So the underpinning technologies started to move in the late 60s, early 70s, and were joined by some other technologies. But when do you actually feel that you're at the slightly out of control point of the curve rather than this boring point of the curve? And, and as you say, 2011 to 2014. And here's the thing that happened in a number of different areas. In industry, in 2009, the world's largest companies or America's largest companies were all companies built on the technologies of the turn of the 19th to 20th century. So it was ExxonMobil, ConocoPhillips, Chevron, General Motors, AT&T, General Electric, Ford, Valero. Um, and then you had Walmart, which uh, sort of in a strange way is dependent on suburbanization and the car. Anyway, by 2013, 2014, essentially the largest companies in the world are all built on exponential technologies and network effects. And that has only increased since then, right? So I would go around and talk to people in 2015 and say, can you imagine a time when Apple would, would be worth $500 billion? And they'd go, no, no way. It's completely overvalued. Of course, it's worth two and a half trillion now and Microsoft is worth even more. And so, so that is one clear moment of the turning point. But there are other moments in that turning point. There is that sense somehow in 2016 that Social media has changed the way that politics and discourse works in not just the US, but also in the UK and in other parts of the world. And that our attention is a lot on what's going on within social media, whether it's legitimate activity or disinformation. But it's also the time that you see for the first time the price of renewable power from solar panels and wind turbines competing with fossil fuels and winning on a price basis because those technologies have been getting consistently cheaper for decades up until that point. And, and then there are a few other sort of signifiers that suggest that some of the more mature exponential technologies are crossing this threshold and they are going into that uptick. So in 2016, so slightly outside of that original range, about a fifth of all cars sold in Norway were electric vehicles. And that trigger, that 20% tends to be a threshold. If, if anyone who's a marketer and you think about the vast diffusion curve, 
20% is a moment you move out of early adopter into early majority. And it's the point that you go through an exponential growth phase in your market. And that's exactly what happened, right? So as of late 2021, about 95% of all cars sold in Norway, new cars are electric vehicles. So the reason that I point, put that kink in the curve in that period, and I say it, it's not like the date of the Sputnik launch, which is a single date in history. It is a period of time. It's, these are the moments where there's a distinct before and after when we look at the world, even if analysts like me and historians and others could see that the underlying processes were at work many years before that. And Azim, one of the things that I understood better and many of the leaders I interact with understood better was the growth in computing or the exponential growth in computing, part because of Moore's law and having seen, having heard things like now we have more computing technology in an iPhone than most satellite launches or rocket launches had. So there is an understanding of, to a certain extent, computing and the exponential growth there. You add to that artificial intelligence, which is critical. You also add three other areas. So it's not just with respect to technology as we've known it, computing. What are the technologies that you see will grow exponentially and therefore impact how we live in our societies and how our companies, organizations operate? Moore's law and chips are the ones that we are most familiar with. But there are three other domains that I think are really important. One is the domain of the new biology, where we're able to take our, our new theory, better understanding of biology, and we can understand the software code of life through DNA sequences and how genes express proteins and other aspects known as the omics that we now understand better. And the key point there is that as an example, the first human genome that was sequenced ran to about a billion dollars to do. And we can now do them for a couple of hundred dollars if we do them in, in bulk. And that price has got much lower than the rate that Moore's law would have predicted for chips. That's not the only thing else, other thing that's happening in biology. And I'll just talk about the other two platforms as well. Then we can talk about applications if, and impacts if you're interested. Then the second area is in the field of new energies where coal and oil and natural gas have reached their limits. Not only will they not get any more efficient, nor will they get any cheaper, but we just can't afford to put the carbon into the atmosphere anymore. Unfortunately, there's a whole slew of energy production technologies like solar and wind that are on these exponential price declines. And there's also uh, the same thing is happening in storage with lithium-ion batteries declining in price for the same capacity by about 19% every year for the last 15, 20 years or so. And then the final area is the area of manufacturing. So, you know, largely manufacturing hasn't changed much for hundreds, maybe thousands of years. You know, we either take a block of something and chisel away at it, or we make a mold of something and pour a substance into it and let it solidify. Basically what we do, we, we cut or we mold or we cast. Recently in the last sort of 20 years or so, we've started to get better at 3D printing, additive rather than subtractive manufacturing. So the problem with casting and molding is that you only make the same identical thing all the time. And there's a limit to the amount of intricacy you could get through those molds and casts. The problem with subtractive manufacturing is that you throw away a lot of material because you chip away at it and the marble pieces that were on the Venus de Milo end up swept away. And there are, again, certain types of structures you can't construct because you, you can't get into them. 
additive manufacturing 3D printing lets us take particular substrates and print with it. And we can make amazing things. Right now, it's a tiny, tiny industry and it's all aerospace and automotive and medical devices, but people are printing houses. One of my colleagues worked for two years in a 3D printed office in Dubai. They're printing with cannabis now. They are printing human organs and also with 3D printed meats as well on the other side. And the thing about 3D printing is that right now it's expensive and it's slow and it's a bit weird but it's improving on a price performance basis by about 29% every year, which listeners now know equates to an almost doubling every couple of years. And that is quite remarkable. So those are the three areas, additional areas, the new biologies, these new clean energy stack and additive manufacturing. That is incredible because I hadn't personally reflected as much on the potential of each one of those impacting society at large, in addition to the leaders leading their organizations. A couple of elements I want to touch on before understanding each one of those a tiny bit better. You talk a lot about the fact that technology is built on the social context that we operate in. And give the example, which I wasn't familiar with, that seatbelts, when produced, were even meant to better protect men than women, average body size, so on and so forth. As these technologies, most specifically touching on artificial intelligence, are being rolled out and scaled at exponential levels, what are things we need to consider in order to make sure that the way the technology impacts society is how we want it to impact and shape our societies? We have to make sure that we know who's in the room making those decisions and whose voice is being heard and whose voice is not being heard and be clear about what shortcuts we are taking in order to to ship this. There has been a change in how we think about these things and particularly in AI, what would used to happen was that machine learning systems would be built. They would have some horrible outcome in some place where normally it's a kind of racist or sexist sort of prediction that it makes. And people go, oh no, it hasn't worked. There's an unintended consequence. It hasn't worked. So let's go back up and clean it up. And then you go back, uh, look at the team and the way in which it was produced. And you realize that this risk was never even considered. It was not thought of because no one had that experience. And you saw this with some of the original uh, voice activated assistants a few years ago where they wouldn't respond to calls of sexual violence. So if you were a woman in a situation and you were, you were in a situation of sexual violence, your Siri was going to be useless at being able to deal with that and turning that into an action. And then of course, these companies went back and they made changes and they made these things responsive to that context. Technology is an artificial thing designed by people based on their experience for the goals that they want to achieve, given the constraints that their bosses have put on them. And they're imperfect, these technologies. So given all of that, they also don't do the thing we wanted them to do in the first place as well as they might. If the technology is designed by people who have never had children, then thoughts about how this might impact family life or how this might impact kids are going to have to be forced in through some kind of research process, if they are indeed at all. Now, what I think has happened in the last four or five years has been that there's been a lot of awareness of this issue. I mean, it was well, well known in the 
technology studies and science and technology studies domains in, in academia. It was well known within gender studies um, and feminist studies and, and raised many, many, many times. But there have been people who have done great work to bring these ideas forward, people like Kathy O'Neill in Weapons of Mass Destruction and Caroline Criado Perez, who's book Invisible Women. And a, a lot of books have come out in that area to publicize and popularize this issue. And the way in which companies at the cutting edge are now thinking about this is they are thinking about inclusivity and social impact to the extent they can in the upfront of the development of these systems. But there's only so much you can even do in that upfront. And as a leader, you should be asking for it. You should also recognize that there will be emergent consequences that are not so much unintended consequences because those will happen as well. But an unintended consequence is often just a reflection of your limited planning horizon. But there will be things that emerge through the interactions of those technologies in the economy that you couldn't have tested in the lab. And you therefore have to have a system that allows you to look at them and constantly fine tune them in flight and figure out what problems are emerging. But it has been a real issue and a really deep assumption. When I wrote about this, I wrote about this in the FT in my column about four or five years ago. One of the things that was fascinating was that buildings have their temperature regulated for the typical male occupant who, because of our size and we're pumping around more hot blood around our bodies, we can get away with one less layer than someone who's smaller than us, aka the 51% of the population. And so these things crop up all over the place and leaders are the ones in a position to kind of instigate a change. And one of the frustrations I have, Azim, is when the technologies were, for example, cars driving on the road, the policymakers and the regulators understood a car driving on the road and the barriers and limitations that need to be put on cars driving on different sides of the road. They understood that enough. And added to that is the fact that, for example, in U.S. Congress, it was absolutely embarrassing watching some of the representatives asking the technology executives questions. They don't understand the very basic level of the technology, let alone the implication of this exponential growth in the technology. Married to something that is very big here in the U.S., which is a dogma that says any involvement by uh, regulating agencies or government in technologies or in companies is wrong. Let the market rule. How can policymakers, I have a lot of great listeners from this administration, people in policymaking roles that want to do the right thing. How can policymakers think about setting the kind of parameters that are necessary for society but don't then limit the growth and opportunities that the exponential technologies provide? I mean, it's such a hard question. And maybe let's unpick little bits of it. So one of the issues, of course, is this point that within the US in particular, but it's also true in the UK, technologists believe that any kind of regulation is a bad thing. Regulation is the akin to the guillotine falling on your loved one's head. I mean, there's no circumstance in which that guillotine is a good outcome, right? 
unfortunately, it's actually bred of a deep rewriting of the narrative and of the history and of the understanding of what regulation is. Regulation are the boron rods in a nuclear reactor that stop an uncontrollable chain reaction. Why Chernobyl blew up? It wasn't because of the lack of regulation. It's because the regulatory system, which was a <laughs> cooling system and the neutron absorbers, didn't work. Biological creatures and these technologists, they may not want to be, but they are biological creatures, are essentially a system of upregulatory and downregulatory mechanisms that maintain the homeostasis in their bodies that keep them alive. If you someone starts from a position that regulation is always bad, I'm afraid we're in ivermectin land. It is difficult from that basis against the enormous amount of evidence that demonstrates that this isn't the case. It's no way for us to start. Then there are simple questions that you can make. You can say, well, should we not have regulation in the automotive industry? Should cars have no speed limits and there not be stop signs and there not be red lights and, and so on or not? Some people may say, no, the market should decide. Should there be regulation in airline safety, aviation safety, or should anyone be able to build a plane or should the market decide? Should anyone be able to market a drug and say, this is a, a drug that will prevent your cancer? Or should the market decide? If you find someone who says that in every case, the market should decide, again, we're, well, I'm afraid we're now in ivermectin land. Then they say, okay, well, we, we recognize that, but there's something special about the technology industry where the, the challenge is, there's no other industry that's as big as this that has as little of a regulatory framework around it as the technology industry. And if you look at the financial services industry, which is highly regulated, it has not prevented that industry being profitable and innovative. Oh, and by the way, blowing up. And even though there were tougher regulations put in place in lots of different ways after the global financial crisis, these banks maintained their level of innovation, customer service. They maintained their, their public service function of moving capital to where it was needed as the arteries of the global economy and of development, and they continued to make money. Where does the special pleading come from? The special pleading comes because, frankly, it's a bit of a pain. It's another thing you have to deal with. The special pleading comes because you haven't had it, and now I'm going to make you do it. So it, it's just that loss aversion, right? You're taking away some avenue of freedom that I've had for a really, really long time. I think that the, the special pleading it is something that is not well grounded because the technology industry exists in the form that it does because it has been demonstrated by many, many academics and researchers because of the interventions of the state in various different regulatory forms, whether it was the use of tax dollars to fund DARPA in the 50s and the 60s, whether it was the urgency with which the missile threat, the missile gap was tackled, which poured money into high tech in Silicon Valley and Los Angeles, or whether it is the regulatory framework that provides a tax break on capital gains from private equity, including venture capital, to treat it not as income, but as capital gains, which has created a whole bunch of financial incentives for people to get involved. These are all regulatory interventions. And they are all at the heart of what has built this amazing technology industry. I need to find a more informed challenge 
to this question. Of course, there are bad regulations. There are bad laws. There are bad products. And we've had some really, really terrible ones. We've the debate around Section 230 in the US, for somebody who has followed it a little and sits outside, is to me is really misguided on both sides. The attempt to put in the clipper chip, which Bill Clinton did many, many years ago, was again misguided. The misunderstanding around the value of encryption is misguided again. So there have been many cases of there being really, really poor regulations, but that is not an argument against good regulations and helpful regulations and regulations that can be pro-innovation, regulations that can create resilience in our societies and participation. You make a strong case for it, Azim, and the fact that for many of these companies, they are spending money trying to keep that regulation from happening. However, you make a strong case for the necessity for regulation. On the other side of it, though, you do see even in airplane manufacturing, Boeing 737 MAX, in essence, FAA had contracted back to Boeing the safety of the aircraft in terms of regulating it. That gets to the lack of understanding of the policymakers of the technology in order to be able to regulate or have some regulations that make sense. Any thoughts and perspectives in addition to reading your book, which as I mentioned at the beginning, Azim, I love the book. I love the newsletter and over the past five, six years through the newsletter, through the podcast and through the book, you have helped me understand beautifully the impact that these technologies have on our organizations and on our society. So I do think it's an absolute must read. In addition to that, any thoughts and perspectives on how these technologies that, again, are very hard for people to understand, as opposed to it's a lot easier to understand the cars driving on the road, how the policymakers can try to wrap their heads around regulations that are needed by society to be able to rein in some of these technologies? I think it's less about reining in the technologies than it is about directing them in productive and equitable ways. It may be about reining in concentrations of power within particular organizations, companies that may have that. I mean, that's where there may be some reining required. And I think policymakers have to figure out how they rebuild the trust that has been destroyed in the capability of government and policymaking over the past 50 years. And at this time of crisis, government is not the solution. Government is the problem, as Ronald Reagan said, or any number of things that Margaret Thatcher might have said off the back of that consensus that emerged in the 70s. So I think something has to be done around there. And I think that the mood music does change now and people are starting to assess it with more objectivity. Then if you're a policymaker, I think there are a number of things that have to happen. The first is that you have to do the work. So you have to do the work in trying to understand the technologies from their basics. And there are a number of people who have done that, who were politicians, who have started to deeply understand the technologies. And there are people who are coming out of the technology industry who are now able to do that and sort of speak with more equanimity than someone who works for Facebook's public affairs team in D.C., so you have to do the work so you understand some of the processes and my book and others might help with that. But I think the second thing is that you're not alone in this journey. There are people in civil society and in other 
governmental groups in other countries who are working towards these types of questions. And so there is knowledge that is out there that you can tap into, that you can access. And then I think the third thing that has to emerge is a sense that you're not necessarily going to get this right the first time. So you need to be able to frame this in a way that allows takebacks and do-overs and iterations. And that might be a little bit complex. One of the final thing hurdles, though, that I think remains is that quite often, and I see this in the UK, but I've seen it in other countries as well. It may be a politician rather than a policymaker. I mean, I found that civil servants are often abreast of many of these issues from a sort of technical and broader basis, is that when faced with a challenge around technology, they grab for the nearest comfort blanket, but that comfort blanket has to be one of the biggest five or six technology companies in the world. And that might be the wrong place to seek that comfort and that insight. One doesn't necessarily need the insight from the boss of one of the biggest companies to talk to you about what happens when technology prices drop. Maybe you just need someone who can talk about that without being embedded. And that sense somehow that you have to go back to these captains of industry, which is an absurd title, to give you that insight, I think is something that we need to be a little bit cautious of because those are some of the companies that may need some form of reining in. And I do see this. I see their shininess and their willingness to throw small amounts of money, big in the context of lobbying, but small in their context at this problem. And the trouble is that the fox always wants to eat the chickens. And that's why it's important, again, whether it is the different social platforms and the impact they've had in these conversations for us to view things differently. Now, back to organizational leaders, you do mention, Azim, that in the exponential age, they're winner-take-all companies. You had a conversation with Hao Tai Tang from Ford, and he mentioned how even at Ford, they were trying to hedge their bets. My question is, as the leaders are listening to this conversation, is there any chance for established organizations to make the transition or are the winner-take-all companies the new entrants into the market, the tech companies that grew between 2011, 2014, or can there be reinvention of existing organizations? It depends how much history they read. Very few magnets of the steam and railway age ended up being successful car companies or electricity companies, despite their wealth and connections and access. And Clayton Christensen, the, you know, sadly now passed away, articulated this problem in the innovator's dilemma more than 20 years ago now. And yet here we are. So there is a complex picture here because some companies do things that are just sort of fundamental plumbing back and forth that might not be on the radar and might be not that attractive an industry in an area. And so they're comfortable as companies being rentiers on in the current economic landscape. They're not seeking to create the kind of brand and that strategic position. They're just happy at their 14% profit margin as long as they grow 5% every year. And if that's the case, you know, you can probably figure your way out of it. But there are a lot of companies that are going to be on an absolutely existential footing. And I think then the question is, how do you choose to respond and how do you build the trust with your shareholder base to give you the space to go off and do that? 
So in the case of the car companies, you know, I don't think the car companies will go the way that Blockbuster Video went because they've got much more brand equity. There's a bunch of expertise in making a car about how the door closes and the seats and that is not immediately replaced by an electric powertrain. And they have time. They have time to leverage their balance sheets and get going and figure out how they retool themselves. But the reality is Tesla is 50% of the market cap of the car industry. And so relatively speaking, if you're the boss of any car company, you've done a bad job relative to the industry benchmark, unless you're Elon Musk, because he's taken 50% of the value that that sector has in the last few years. And I think one of the things that you can do is you can ask yourself, and I think both Herbert Deese and Jim um, from Volkswagen and Jim Farley at Ford have credited Musk for creating the belief in the electric vehicle. And the question is, what did Musk see that you didn't see? What did he believe that you didn't believe? Go back and do an after action review, do a back testing like any data scientist would do with their algorithm. Figure out where the decision making went wrong and who and why and what were the processes? Because then I think you can step in and say, well, these are the changes that we need to make. Now, at some point, Mahan, you're going to end up with having to make an allocation decision. And if you're in the hard place where the capital, I'm assuming it's a public company, the capital says, well, we just want you now to eke out operational efficiencies and just give me regularity. We don't want you to make the shift because frankly, we've invested in a bunch of VC funds as well. We're going to just back the shift through that. And then once they go public, we'll buy in at the IPO and we'll just shift the capital. And that might be a completely rational thing to do. And there will be some organizations where that's going to end up being the mix and the match that you face. And, and there will be others where I think you will be able to step in and say, well, how do we go about making this change? And I think one of the challenges, it's a deep, deep, deep leadership challenge that people face is how do you attract the talent to come and do this? I wondered about this with the car companies. Everyone knows we're going electric vehicle, autonomous, new powertrain platforms, future of the car, micromobility. I mean, that is not in doubt now. And it hasn't been, frankly, in my mind for five years. So who are the people in a car company who say, no, I won't work on the old gasoline platform that we're not updating for the next four years? Is it going to be your absolute best and brightest and most dynamic people? Or is it, is it not? And so I think you end up with this challenge, which is that unless you're willing to build for the future and build in the future, the people who want to live in the future, which is most of us, will not want to work with you. So I think it's a super, super hard challenge for leaders. I'm curious about the extent to which the lack of belief in the potential of the technology is still a blocker. Because that was the thing that I used to hear five years ago. People would say to me, yeah, but Tesla's run out of range. And it's like, mm, who does a 350 mile drive without stopping? <laughs> like, nobody. My bladder breaks before the battery breaks. So I think that kind of skepticism had its comeuppance. I mean, there are lots of decent, well thought out things to be skeptical of and to be critical of. So you have to choose the right ones. But I think it's a really, really hard question. I'm not trying to duck it. I'm trying to give some nuance to the kind of issues that you will contend with as a leader facing these questions. Part of the value that you add all throughout the book is that nuance, because we have to understand the changes in the world around us to be able to lead with that. 
End your book, Azim, with thoughts around collective thinking, flexibility, and designing in resilience as being critical for leaders to do with their organizations. Would love to get your perspectives on how that can be done well. There's been a lot of conversation around it. However, the reality of most organizations and most teams hasn't caught up with the language. How have you seen as both an entrepreneur yourself, as an investor in organizations, organizations and leaders being able to actually make that a reality? I think if you talk about these things and you check them, you start to build a discipline and a toolkit that is appropriate for your organization. So the three values that I talk about are the power of collectives and collective structures, both in terms of employees and in terms of how we allocate resources. The second is in the idea of resilience. And the third is in the idea of flexibility. Now, those are distinct to perhaps some of the values we've had of the previous 50 years, which were about efficiency and growth and private enclosure. And in the same way that you kick off your monthly review with a business review that looks at efficiency in some way, some question is asked about that. And right at the end, you had your business continuity plan. It's on slide 78 of the 78 page deck that you have to go through as you review this with your business unit head. Uh, and frankly, everyone's a bit bored, but because you've gone through your executive coaching program, you know that you have to sit up and pay attention to slide 78 <laughs> and no one cares. So the question is, where do you put that in? And how do you start to communicate that back out? Because the trouble with resilience and flexibility is they're like insurance products that have a cost upfront, even if the return isn't necessarily visible. So you then have to figure out how you're going to communicate that to the stakeholders and the purse holders of all of this. I think that you can do that by changing what you pay attention to what you ask your leaders about, what things do you measure? So for example, on the question of flexibility, one analysis, one aspect of flexibility, and you understand, Mahan, you've read the book, you know that these are the distillation of some quite complex ideas that we apply societally. But one aspect of flexibility is how you learn going through an agile development process of design, build, test, learn, design, build, test, learn. And one of the things that I do with the founders that I work in, the companies I, I'm invested in, is I ask them about their cycle time. How quickly do you go through that DBTL or OODA loop cycle? Because that, for me, talks me through to how agile and flexible they will be able to be if the external environment changes. It also, by the way, connects to one aspect of their resilience, because if your DBTL cycle is, say, six months, and you have a year's worth of cash, you can only go through one cycle before you absolutely have to get it right. Whereas if your DBTL cycle is one day and you have a year's worth of cash, you've got 365 cycles to go through and figure things out. So it talks a little bit also to the resilience and the longevity of the business. So that's one example that you could use as a leader when you're asking these questions. How quickly are we learning? And how is our rate of learning improving? Those are really essential because you talk about the fact that the ability to learn really becomes important as we go through. I totally agree with that. Azim, how do you manage the information flow 
And when you are asked for your leadership references, resources that you recommend to others, what do you find yourself typically recommending? I have increasingly moved on the business side to histories rather than toolkits. And so I find it really, really interesting now, this particular point where no one knows is the answer. I mean, you can read my book, please do. And so the seven step toolkit for achieving this kind of business outcome for where we are today won't be written for another 10 years. But what is helpful is to look at people who have thought very, very deeply about these issues at previous transition points to start to get an understanding of what's going on. So I'm currently reading a book on the history of work written by a a Dutch academic who's 74 years old. He's just encyclopedic in his knowledge. And even though I wrote a book that covers some of this stuff, I'm getting in new insights all the time. So that's one aspect of it. I think the second aspect of it with the personal side is that accessing fictional literature and accessing philosophical framings of questions, I think can be really, really helpful. I find myself going back to Brave New World and Aldous Huxley written in the 1932, where he really understood Fordism just so beautifully so soon after the fact. And a hundred years later, nearly, it's still highly, highly relevant. And then, of course, I'm reading a lot of newspapers and equity analyst research and market research and stuff that comes through Twitter. But the, one of the beauties for me is that I very rarely go directly to the homepages of these products. I tend to go via the personal recommendation of the experts I follow on Twitter. So there is something really valuable to be following somebody who you know is an expert on nuclear fusion when they send out a tweet saying this new paper in Nature is interesting for the following four or five reasons. I've got a high signal to tell me that I should go off and read that. And so that's really been my mix. And what you'll notice is that some of it is very long form and very slow and gestated and mulled over and considered. And some of it is much more fast moving, but I'm reliant on the social signal of the people I follow who I do for deliberate reasons. And what's missing is that middle piece where I'm just getting the bland melange, apologies for anyone who works at USA Today, of the USA Today front cover. And why would I do that? Because those people just don't know as much as the practitioners do. So that has been the way that I, my information mix works. It's understanding who can become channels to those signals. How can the audience, Azim, find out more about your book, Exponential Age, your work, your newsletters? What's the best way for the audience to connect with you? Exponential View is available at exponentialview.co. You can sign up for the newsletter. There's a free version. There's a premium version. And the premium version has this community. So that's pretty interesting. There's a podcast of the same name. The book is available at all booksellers. So you just have to put in the Exponential Age in my name and the search will show up wherever you want to. And if you're on Twitter, I'm at Azim and also on, on LinkedIn. I mentioned at the beginning, Azim, you are one of those people that is a real source of signal for me rather than noise. In a world full of noise, I look to you and really appreciate, whether it's through your podcast, through your newsletter, through your book, you have a ton of signal, which is why I'm appreciative of you joining me in this conversation for Partnering Leadership Thank you so much, Azim Azhar. Thank you so much for having me on. 
You've been listening to Partnering Leadership with your host, Mahan Tavakoli. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at partneringleadership.com.